From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today on The Public Morality, we'll speak with author Todd Brewster about his best-selling book, Lincoln's Gamble, the tumultuous six months that gave America the Emancipation Proclamation and changed the course of the Civil War. And after that, Winston-Salem Mayor Alan Joins will discuss poverty and the innovative ways the city proposes to address it. Coming up next on The Public Morality. You would think that a subject that has been covered some 23,000 times would have exhausted the literary world. That is not so when it comes to Abraham Lincoln. But after more than 23,000 books, what else could possibly be said about the country's 16th president? But author Todd Brewster has proven persuasively there is more to be said in his book Lincoln's Gamble, the tumultuous six months that gave America the Emancipation Proclamation and changed the course of the Civil War. Author and historian Joseph Ellis writes, Although Lincoln is the most written-about figure in American history, Brewster's book is a major entry in the Lincoln sweepstakes. Todd Brewster, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Now, one of the things we try to do on the show is reveal our biases. So I, I, I will begin this conversation by stating, in my opinion, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Emancipation Proclamation form the troika by which we derive the title of this program, which is why we call it the public morality. Do you see the Emancipation Proclamation in that similar light? Is it part of that troika for you? I do, and actually, uh, you must have been uh, uh, eavesdropping on some of my lectures because that's what I do is I often say to people, if you say the three most important documents in American history, what would they be? And they automatically say the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, and then they stumble on the third one. So people say the Gettysburg Address, and I say, well, that's not really a document in the same sense. It's a speech, right? Or they'll say, um, Luther King's uh, letter from a Birmingham jail. That's a private letter, you know, made public for good reason and a wonderful document in its own right. But the Emancipation Proclamation is the one that I put forward to them because of its tremendous impact upon the country. Now, here's perhaps the most obvious question, the one you've probably been asked more times than you care to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Why would you take on a subject that has been written about more than 23,000 times? <laughs> uh, well, I guess that's a certain kind of uh, intellectual arrogance, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, for as much as Lincoln has been written about, um, I found, uh, as I read more and more about the six months leading up to the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation, that this was a short episode in his life that seemed to be a way of crystallizing so many themes, both about him personally, about the presidency, about our country, about race, about religion, about war. Uh, everything seemed to come together in the six months going from the moment when he first mentions to his two cabinet aides that he's riding in a carriage ride on the way to the funeral of Edwin Stanton, the young infant son of, I'm sorry, the, uh, James Stanton, the young infant son of, of Edwin Stanton. As he's going on that carriage ride, he mentions to Gideon Wells and Edwin, and to um, uh, um, Stanton, that he, uh, not Stanton, I'm sorry, Seward, that he's going to free the slaves. And from that moment forward to the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation on January 1, 1863, we see so many themes that I thought had never really been sort of teased out at, in, in one historical moment the way that this book does. Well, well, I'm going to go back. Say a little bit more, if you will, about that carriage ride, because it is significant other than the guy just had an idea to free the slaves. <laughs> right. Well, exactly. Well, to, to begin with, we know that um, uh, as the war began, uh, Lincoln made it very clear he had no intention to free the slaves, uh, that his uh, mission for the war was to restore the Union. And uh, when asked if you may know the famous line. He actually says it in, in this time period, in August of 1862, he's, where he's asked... Horace Greeley uh, says it, right? Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Uh, in response to a, a, a letter from Horace Greeley urging him to go forward and free the slaves, he says, if I could, my main goal is to save the Union. I'm paraphrasing here, but yeah. uh, if, I could free, if I could save the Union by freeing all the slaves, I would free all the slaves. If I could save it by freeing some of them and not others, I would do that. If I could do it by freeing none of the slaves, I would do that. So he, he makes it very clear that it is the uh, saving of the Union that's the mission of the war. Now, Lincoln's been very vocal about his opposition to slavery leading up to this. We all know that from the Lincoln-Douglas debates, and certainly 
it was the uh, uh, um, attitude of the South that, having seen Lincoln elected president, that their the days of their peculiar institution, as they called it, were numbered. Um, but uh, when Lincoln begins uh, uh, his response to the to the South and secession by fighting to keep them within the Union, it is only to keep them within the Union. And even um, some rebel generals who decide on their own to free slaves uh, during those first two years of the war in districts that they have conquered, he upbraids uh, uh, um, them and tells them, no, they must restore them to their owners. And in fact, the fugitive slave laws are respected by the Union Army in the first two years of the war. They, when slaves would come across the lines and run to the Union Army to ask for freedom, they would return them to the slaveholders. So Lincoln clearly uh, did not intend in those first two years to make such an abrupt uh, shift in his policy. Um, yet here he was in the middle of 1862, the war going very, very poorly. Uh, he just came from the Chesapeake campaign, which has been a disaster for the Union. His army is being led by George B. McClellan, who is really a Southern sympathizer. Think of that by itself. You have the head of the Union army is sympathizing with the enemy. Um, and he hands Lincoln a letter when Lincoln comes to visit him in the Chesapeake and Lincoln does that because he wants to address the morale of the troop after these troops after this terrible defeat. McClellan hands him a letter that says, I will, uh, I will fight to restore the Union. I will not fight uh, the civil institutions of the South. I will not fight a war to abolish slavery. Uh, so Lincoln has had all these sort of, uh, this, this sort of tor turmoil of thought going on for a considerable amount of time about both the challenge to him and his principles. He had hoped that he could end the, uh, the dispute with the South with a gradual, compensated, slow end to slavery, one that would be peaceful. Um, and it was his, right up to the moment when he signs the Emancipation Proclamation six months later, it is still his wish that he could do that. But he is in a terrible position. Um, and he's in a terrible position personally, too. He's lost his own son to the same thing that killed James Stanton, the infant son whose funeral he's going to, typhoid had killed Lincoln's son in February of that year. Uh, so he's got, his wife has been driven to uh, great eccentricities by the loss of her favorite child. And so he has personal anguish. He has anguish over the war. He has anguish over the mission of the war. Um, and he arrives into this carriage ride on his way to the, to the uh, funeral of James Stanton with the knowledge in, to him and him alone that he had been working on the language, the proper language for the freeing of the slaves because it was a big legal challenge to him. Um, and he blurts this out to the two companions in the carriage that he's going to do. And he says to them, I'm, I don't wish to be argued out of this. That's not why I'm introducing it. I even wish for you to tell me that I'm right. I, I wish you only to know that this is what I've decided. Now, that was a habit of Lincoln's, was it not? To just yes. sort of voice these things out and really, I don't want you to, re, to debate me about it. I'm just telling you what I'm thinking. He did that frequently, did he not? He did, and he may, um, since you've read the book, you'll know there's this section later, sort of later in the book where Lincoln uh, invites one of his good friends to the White House, and he reads aloud the Emancipation Proclamation to him, and he tells him he doesn't want him to say anything. He just wants to read it aloud so he can hear it, and he believes that saying it, of course he can say it in an empty room, but to him, having an audience change the way that the words would there's one way of understanding the words he said which is to see them in print another way to hear them uh, enter into a room and a third way to hear them enter a room where there's somebody's ears who are taking them in and each way you gain some new knowledge of what it is that you've written so he was very very his prose is always very readable in that sense um and he was very particular about what he wanted to, to say. You know, one of the real ironies I find about the Emancipation Proclamation, since since you and I hold it in similar esteem, is that if you said that the, the Declaration of Independence, you know, we hold this truth to be self-evident, or the Constitution, we the people of the United States, the, we can quote something from those documents. Right. I can't okay. quote anything from the Emancipation <laughs> Proclamation that states uh, that are in rebellion, something like that, you know. <laughs> right. I mean, there's no, there's no memorable line. Well, again, what I do when I lecture is I say to people, Okay, now let's, let's take this idea that the Emancipation Proclamation is the third most important document in American history, and I tell them why I think it is, and I say, okay, tell me a couple of lines from it, and nobody can say anything. I right? gave you three words. <laughs> States in rebellion. Okay, there you go. <laughs> Not terribly memorable or poetic, are they? Uh, and this is, this is the, a document written by our most poetic president, the man who had 
the greatest command of the language is for score uh, pe- uh, of the people for the people. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, the second inaugural is a beautiful speech. The yes. Gettysburg Address is a wonderful speech. Um, he had he was supremely well read, um, and yet he had a he, the reason that the Emancipation Proclamation does not have memorable phrases in it is is, is quite a conscious decision of of Lincoln's. He uh, he needed to make this a legal document. Um, he he needed to make a document that would uh, stand up to the courts. Um, it was not a document of persuasion. It was like a uh, you know the, the famous historian Richard Hofstetter said it has all the poetry of a bill of lading. <laughs> um, but you know to me uh, it is the act that is poetic. It's not the words. It's the act itself, and and the fact that he did it as a proclamation. The um, uh, early on in the uh, in the debate among the cabinet members over whether to issue an Emancipation Proclamation, uh, um, Salmon Chase says to Lincoln, well, "Why must we do this? Why don't we just tell the Union Army forces as they conquer territory to free the slaves? Why do we need to make a proclamation? Why don't we do it silently so that it isn't drawing attention to it and 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 um, perhaps stirring up uh, a negative response?" And Lincoln listened to him, but didn't take any of that advice. Because so Lincoln, I think it was supremely important that it was a proclamation. He was proclaiming to the world that the slaves would now be free. And it is in that act that we see the poetry. It's the fact that he is proclaiming freedom for four millions. Talk about um, the, the W.E.B. Du Bois quote uh, and why it inspired you to, to write this book. Yeah, you know what? There were, there were two things that I, I found um, compelling, uh, and, they, and they all came together in Du Bois, but um, w- one about the Emancipation Proclamation you already mentioned, which is that it, it, it isn't particularly memorable, um, uh, and the second is that we tend to think of Lincoln as on a pedestal. We tend to think of him as our greatest president. I think he was our greatest president, but I, I, you know, my background is in journalism, and, and um, I, I worked for ABC News for many years, and also for time, and I, I tend to look upon things somewhat more skeptically, and so I wanted to sort of understand how is it that someone could carry this level of, of, um, of myth with them. Uh, where's the humanity? Where's the real? Where's the? Where's the hu- human fiber in Lincoln? And the uh, Du Bois, who wrote uh, what you're referring to, was uh, something that inspired me. That I mentioned in the introduction, wrote about Lincoln in 1920, which was by itself already uh, somewhat courageous to be saying the things he was about to say, which was that he doubted some of this sort of myth building. And he did so at the moment of when Lincoln was being raised up. I think perhaps more than any other moment to the apotheosis. I mean, he was. This was the time of the Lincoln Memorial. This was the time of the beginning of all the writings about Lincoln that led to the great Sandberg tributes and the, many of the, the sort of mythologizing of Lincoln came out of people who wrote really a lot of untruths about Lincoln um, during this time and in the time leading up to it, too. People who claimed him to be a devout Christian, which he was not. Um, he was a God-fearing man in the end, and that's a big part of this book. But uh, he was not a tradi- Christian in the traditional sense. The term never joined a church. Um, he was... Uh, uh, more in the, in the line of the Thomas Paine kind of rationalists. Um, but uh, I'll read you the quote from, from uh, sure. Du Bois, because sure. right I think it's so important. He says, Abraham Lincoln was a southern poor white of illegitimate birth, poorly educated, unusually ugly, awkward, and ill-dressed. He liked smutty stories and was a politician down to his toes, um, which I think is a rather courageous thing for him to have said at that time. Um, and and but what you find out, though, as you as you read more into what Du Bois was writing, is that he, he meant he was a he was a person like the rest of us. Yes, he came he came from the South. He was he had some of the same Southern prejudices as those people he was fighting against. He he was uh, uh, self educated. He was he was homely. He um, uh, uh, he had uh, people who thought he was illegitimate. Uh, um, uh, he he could tell a smutty story with the best of them and and was admired by many around him for his his humor. Um, uh, but what what Du Bois goes on to say is that uh, he loved Abraham Lincoln and, and not because he was perfect, but because he was not. Mm-hmm. Um, because he did what he did while being a human being, and I think we've lost sight of that in our in our raising up of Lincoln to this to the status of um, of, of, of myth and. Um, so I felt, well, here's a six-month episode of Lincoln's life in which we see him struggling. He is not a man of pure moral 
um, advocacy. I mean, he he's not sure that he has the courage to uh, issue the Emancipation Proclamation. He issues it, or he, I'm sorry, he writes it, puts it away, hides it away, he disowns it. Uh, uh, several black leaders come, free black leaders come to see him at his request, and he urges them to lead a movement to for for uh, black Americans to leave the country and colonize in Panama, because he says, um, uh, but for your race, there would be no war. I mean, a, a horrific thing to be saying to to uh, black leaders at the time, as if he suddenly lost his courage. He's doing this all while his Emancipation Proclamation is lying in his desk drawer, not yet issued, written, you know, stewed over, but not yet issued. A few weeks later, a group of of uh, priests come to and ministers come to see him to complain that he's not moving fast enough on on ending slavery, and he said, "Why would I want to do that?" And he issued all these reasons, which um, you'll see in the book are references to the many, many constitutional complications there were to the issue. You know, if he frees the slaves, uh, uh, he has to free them as an act of war. Therefore, he's freeing them only in the belligerent states, leaving slavery in the in the parts of the north while taking it uh, or ending it in the south. Yet he doesn't even have control over the south. Well, how can he free the slaves? In the South. Um, there are, are, are loads of constitutional questions about whether even a proclamation could stand up as law. And he says all these things. He rattles them off as if he'd been thinking about them for months, which of course he had been. <laughs> and, and he said, this would be like the Pope's bull against the comet, which is a reference to Pope Calixtus the Thirteenth, which was, uh, believe me, I didn't know this before. I had to look it up too. Uh, <laughs> who issued an, an edict or a bull against uh, the Halley's Comet when he thought it was an apparition brought by the devil? So he said it's as absurd as issuing an edict against a comet, you know. Um, and he sends them off, and they're all just so disappointed in him. So he, even then, he is his. The Emancipation Proclamation is there in his desk drawer. And it's only like three weeks later that he actually issues it after the, uh, the Battle of Antietam, which was the worst single day in American um, uh, war history. To this day, it's the worst single day. Which, ironically, is also the anniversary of the ratification of the Constitution. I mean, that's sort yes. of ironic. <laughs> it is. And Lincoln's life is filled with a lot of irony. You know, he was shot on, on Good Friday. We yes. tend to look at him as a Christ figure uh, uh, for good reason. He freed people. Um, he, uh, uh, he has that, you know, there's all these... You could say ironies are almost sort of mystical qualities attached to his life, which I think is part of the reason why we do mythologize him. But uh, yes, yeah, September 17th, um, uh, five days later, Lincoln issues the Emancipation Proclamation after what is the worst day in American battle history, the Battle of Antietam. Here, here's an irony. This is a personal irony. Um, September 22nd happens to be my birthday, so the Emancipation Proclamation is a 22nd is a big deal for me. I have a lot of pride in that. But also, if Lincoln had his wish, slavery would have ended uh, I think one year before I was born. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, um, not so much his wish, his, yeah. but but he, it was his thought. Right, uh, right. I, I think you're referring to the fact that in, uh, in 1950, I mean 1858, when uh, Lincoln was debating Douglas, um, Douglas, who could be quite snide, accused Lincoln of being one of these religious rabble rousers. It was, you know, there's a lot of a relegating of the spirit of abolition to people who were religious fanatics. Um, and he accuses Lincoln of, 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 being, of wanting to join that core of people who wanted to end slavery and end it right there and then. And Lincoln um, uh, backs off and says, oh, no, no, you, you've got me wrong. You know, I'm, I'm, that's not me. I'm, a, I'm not one of these crazy people, these fanatics. I, I actually believe slavery should end, but we should end it gradually. And he said it, the full extinction could take 100 years. And, of course, as I uh, mentioned in the book, that would take us to the time of uh, Eisenhower and right. Elvis Presley and to Brown versus Sputnik Board of Education. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, and, 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 and yet someone mentioned to me when I was speaking about this a few weeks ago, they raised their hand they said, you know, in some ways he was right because while slavery ended with the 13th Amendment, uh, Jim Crow came in right after that, and the Civil Rights Act didn't really didn't appear until 1963. Uh, 1964. Mm -hmm. So, in some respects, he he had uh, he had mapped out a timeline that you could define as significant for the um, issue. We put it that way. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you, what did the proclamation actually do? Well, that's that's a good question. Um, and uh, uh, any of your listeners who have seen the Steven Spielberg Lincoln movie will will recognize that. Um, the Thirteenth Amendment um, is pushed by Lincoln in that in that movie uh, with great fervor to have the amendment passed before 
the war is over. And, and there's a reason for that. Um, if you back up and look at the Emancipation Proclamation, as I, I alluded to before, Lincoln could not just by proclamation, by fiat, just say the property of the, these southern slaveholders has now been taken by the federal government. That would have been a violation of the, of the uh, Constitution. The Constitution, as it was written, supported slavery. So it was, this would be like a taking, like a, you know, taking a private property, no different than federal government coming in and taking your home um, or taking your, your belongings. So he didn't have that right as president um, uh, that power, I should say, as president to end slavery uh, with the wave of the hand. The way he understood it, though, and this was a little bit of a threading of the needle, was that he could do this freeing of the slaves if he did it as an act of war. Uh, to him, that anything that uh, served the purpose of victory in the war could be justified uh, according to the Constitution because of his role as commander-in-chief and because the overall mission of the war was to self to protect the Constitution. So he decided, and you'll look at the language of the Emancipation Proclamation, it very carefully refers to the fact that it is being done as an act of war. Now, even then, Lincoln was actually entering into new territory because wars tended to be fought as armies against armies, and the notion that he would attack the civilian institutions, uh, civilian private property uh, of your enemy was not considered to be fair according to the rules of war. In fact, when Lincoln issues the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, one of Jefferson Davis's first responses, Jefferson Davis being the president of the Confederacy, is that it is unfair, it's unchristian, he says to Lincoln, for you to attack our civil institutions. So Lincoln, Lincoln had, to, had to think very carefully about how he was going to word this. He decided that he would go with the option of saying that he had the power to do it by virtue of his power as commander-in-chief. But he could never, within the span of that document, ever say he's doing it because it's the right thing to do. He had to say that it was doing it in order to further the ends of the war aim. Now, that meant that it freed the slaves in the South, but as I mentioned before, he didn't have control over the South, so those areas where he didn't have control, he was, quote-unquote, freeing them. Did not end slavery in the North, did not free the slaves in the North, I should say. And it did not end slavery, by the way, because one of the great worries that Lincoln had was that if he freed the slaves, according to an act of war, what would happen when the war was over? The, the, the legal justification for that freedom would have expired. Would, could the slaves be re-enslaved, the former slaves be re-enslaved? Uh, slavery itself would, certainly wouldn't have ended mere, by, merely by his proclamation. So that's why you see him in that movie pushing so hard to have the, the amendment passed to end slavery, because that's a, that is actually a different... Uh, uh, act than the uh, um, emancipation had been. Uh, the emancipation was itself was by definition uh, temporary and only in certain parts of the country, those parts that were belligerent to the United States. There's one last irony here that Lincoln had to deal with, which was uh, that he was doing, as he said, as an act of war, and yet he didn't think he was at war with the South. He thought the South was in rebellion, very different. Um, uh, and so he was assuming powers he would have certainly had in a foreign war, as commander-in-chief, but the question was going to be, and he had a hostile Supreme Court in 1862, would the court look upon him as, as um, using uh, powers beyond his constitutional mandate uh, because this was a rebellion, not a war? That's how he had deemed it to be, and he wasn't going to change his own terminology, and yet that terminology worked against him. Talk about the border states' reaction uh, to the proclamation. Well, one thing to say first off is that the reaction... Uh, unlike unlike our politics today, uh, I guess I can't say our politics today are um, any more predictable. But we have so we have we have the tools by which to understand public opinion a little bit better. Uh, you know, there was no polling at the time. There was no, there were no um, uh, uh, there was no mass media uh, in the sense like we think of it today. And so Lincoln, another roll of the dice here for Lincoln. Another reason why I titled the book Lincoln's Gamble is that for Lincoln he. He, he didn't know if uh, uh, the people of Maryland, the people of Kentucky, the people of, of Indiana, the people of Illinois, um, whether they would back him in a war that was uh, to free the slaves. Uh, it's, he feared a couple of things. He feared that it would mean that the, the, um, uh, there, there could be a, a servile rebellion in the South where the slave, former slaves would rise up and kill their, their former masters, or the opposite, that the, the, the slaveholders would do a kind of scorched earth genocide of, the, of, of their slaves. He, he didn't know if the slaves would accept their freedom. They might 
feel so tied to their to their owners that they would instead fight for the Confederate cause, and some of them, of course, did, very small number, but some did. Um, the, the laborers in the North were already making noises about the war going on for so long, and then when this came up about the fear they had that the freed slaves would come North and take their jobs. So throughout the, the North, there was good reason to believe that the Emancipation Proclamation would be greeted with uh, derision. Um, uh, remember also, they, the, the mission to march south and fight to restore the Union was one thing for these soldiers in the North to risk their lives and, and leave their farms and come uh, fight for the freedom of the slaves was a whole other thing. And he had no idea whether he, they would, he would get the enthusiasm of the Northern soldiers to buy, buy into uh, a cause that now had two meanings, one to um, save the Union, the other one to end slavery. When you researched this book, was there anything that you learned about Lincoln that sort of altered your previous perception of him? Well, as I said, I sort of went looking for the humanity, and I and I think I I found it. Um, he is, um, you know, I, I guess the, the the most powerful thing to me is that probably like most men in their enthusiasm, and perhaps we'll find out that a, a woman will act the same way uh, for entering into the presidency with great enthusiasm for what they can do, how they can help shape the country and change things for the better. Um, Lincoln arrived with that kind of enthusiasm, and even believed, I think, that his um, his uh, leadership of the war uh, would be something that, as he made decisions, they would result in the outcomes that he predicted. Um, and in fact, the opposite happened. Uh, life taught Lincoln a lesson. Um, uh, he, we, we, we see him emerging, I mentioned before, about there being a kind of religious overtone to these six months. And what Lincoln, who is certainly a creature of the Enlightenment, a rationalist, uh, fond of Tom Paine, fond of, um, of, of, of secular teaching, never joined a church, um, Lincoln believes much more, I think, in science and in the predictable outcome of, of um of certain human behaviors until he becomes president and realizes that uh, that he cannot control such things with 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 the to the degree that he had hoped he could. The war goes poorly. Um, the Congress is recalcitrant. The um, uh, his own personal losses are profound. Uh, uh, he is stymied by how he will end slavery and whether he can end it uh, 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 peacefully. Um, he's stymied by the fact that something as morally uh, wrong as slavery needs to be um, the, the uh, center of, a, of the killing that's going on throughout the country. And so you see him making more and more references in these six months to uh, the will of God um, in a kind of Calvinist sense that he had been raised with, but he had kind of rejected um, as a young man. And even down to the last day, the day before he signs the Emancipation Proclamation, after months of political intrigue, months of, of his own personal doubt, after Frederick Douglass announces publicly he believes that Lincoln will um, chicken out, essentially, and, and never get to the point of signing, he'll, find, he'll defer the date later uh, from the date that he had, he had said was the deadline. Um, he will... Um, He'll never do what he said he was going to. On the night before, on, on, on uh, uh, December 31st, uh, New Year's Eve, um, Mary Lincoln comes into him and says, well, what have you decided to do? And he said, it is not up to me, woman. It's not <laughs> up to me. Uh, it, it, is up to, it is up to he who controls all events. And, it, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not that Lincoln was, as I said, profoundly uh, religious, uh, I think it's that he became humbled by his inability to control things. And uh, he even, sa even says, or writes, that, uh, 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 in, in these six months that he has come to believe that he does not control events that events have controlled him. Um, you know, so I think that was the most striking thing to me. Mm -hmm. You realize his loneliness with that revelation, his uh, sense of uh, humility, his belief uh, um, in, uh, uh, restored, I guess you could say, in a God who works in mysterious ways. Uh, one of the things that I really loved about Lincoln's gamble, I, I see that was an endorsement right there for the book. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I, I felt that you, you, you actually attempted and succeeded in presenting Lincoln in a three-dimensional way. 
to sort of allows us to see all these myriad sides. I sort of felt you at times wrestling with Lincoln's decision at, at any particular moment, just raising questions for the reader to ponder. So with that said, with that said, I want you to put your 19th century hat on. And I'm going to ask you several quick questions. One, was Lincoln a tyrant? In 19th century, put your 19th century hat yeah, on. Was he a yeah. tyrant? I think he, uh, well, I, I would say he was a gentle tyrant, let me put it that way. Uh, he certainly uh, assumed some extra constitutional powers. I think it's pretty clear that he did, but he did so at a time when the country was under great stress, and if he had not, I'm not sure that we would have survived. Was the suspension of habeas corpus constitutional? No, I don't believe it was. Um, you know, it's mentioned in uh, Article 1, uh, which is reserved for the powers of the Congress, not of the president. Now, Lincoln had a very good argument, which was, um, are we do the, 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 the section that references this power um, refers to moments of crisis, when Lincoln's point was, are we to expect that a legislative body that meets for a few months a year is going to be prepared at any moment of crisis to respond uh, when uh, habeas corpus needs to be suspended? Um, I do think that he had a dilemma. You know, he was, the Capitol was becoming surrounded by rebels. Uh, there was a distinct possibility that Washington will be overrun with Confederates. And he chose to suspend habeas corpus as a means of um, controlling that. But I think a clerical reading of the Constitution does not uh, uh, show that he had that power. Was he a racist? Well, uh, and a 19th century hat on here, as you yeah. said before. Yes. Um, well, I, that's kind of a hard question to answer, because I suppose you could argue that uh, uh, race, uh, racism is, a, is an absolute. You're either racist or you're not. Uh -huh. uh, can you be a degree of race? He was racist, certainly by any judgment in our own time. He did not believe in the equality of the races. Um, I believe he believed in the inferiority, in fact, of the um, African race, as he would have said. Uh, he just didn't believe that they should be enslaved. Um, it's interesting that... that um, uh, Lincoln's justification often for ending slavery was not so much based upon race as it was upon labor. Uh, to him, it was immoral that uh, one man should live off the fruits of another man's work, um, forced work, that is. Uh, and he found that to be uh, morally objectionable. Um, I, you know, uh, I, I think that he grew. Um, I think that uh, when he got to know Frederick Douglass, he was impressed and treated him as an equal. Um, I, up to that point, he had not had a black man as a friend that I know of. Um, he was uh, certainly captured by a lot of the thinking of his time, and his, I outlined some of it in the book. There was a lot of you know, uh, pseudo-racial science being introduced, not just in the South, it was being introduced at Harvard, um, right. arguing that... that you know, that the nature of the African brain was such that it was inferior to that of the European brain. Um, you know, he was certainly victim to a lot of that as well as to the prejudices of his own uh, upbringing. So I think we would say he was racist uh, by any standard we would measure it today. Uh, but I think in, its own time, he, in his own time, he was certainly advanced. He, he was open-minded enough that I believe he changed. See, Todd, that's why I allowed you to put your 19th century hat on and not hold him up to our yeah. much more advanced 21st century standards because we've got it all figured out in the 21st century. Oh, of right? course. <laughs> right. Oh, of course. <laughs> what do they do? They look back on us in the 22nd century and tell us what fools we were. Right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, finally, what makes Lincoln so fascinating? Because I'm, I'm going to guess your book will not be the last entry on Lincoln's <laughs> life. No, I don't, I'm sure not. Um, well, I, I believe there are, I, I, I think, first of all, he's fascinating as a, as a person because he came from so little and he rose to such great heights. I also think that um, he's fascinating to us as Americans um, because, you know, what, we, what ties us together is a belief, I believe, in two really essential um, principles of life. One is liberty, and they're, and they're intertwined. One is liberty, the other one's equality. Um, you could argue, and it's sort of a broad brushstroke kind of approach to history, but you could say that our founding, the focus of our founding was on liberty, and the focus of our civil war was on equality. Um, we needed both parts of that to form the American idea. It's almost as if we, we introduced our 
first founding notion at the founding, but we needed to marry it up with something else that it took a civil war for us to, to realize. And liberty and equality are the two principles that brush up against each other with great friction right into our own, our own present day in a way that keeps us dynamic and keeps us who we are as people. And all you need to do is open up the paper or the, these days the blog or the website and see, look at today's news, and you will find dozens of examples of where liberty and equality are brushing up against each other in some dynamic way. And where this conversation we carry out with ourselves, with our communities, uh, with our society, between our, each other as people, is so much um, around the reconciling of these two ideas. Uh, Lincoln is at the center of that. Um, he, uh, he established equality as central to the American uh, public conversation and the American idea. And I think he finished the idea in a sense. He became, you know, they always say, before the Civil War, uh, the United States was a, was a plural noun. Afterwards, it was a singular noun. And, and, and I think it's because we have those ideas uh, brought together by him as a political figure. One last thing about it, too, is, you know, with the Civil War, with Lincoln's decision to free the slaves, we became a biracial country, essentially. I mean, you have to see all the things that ripple from the proclamation, including the 13th Amendment and the other two Civil War amendments. Uh, you have to, to, to uh, 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 look at the broader picture to see that, but Lincoln really turned us into a biracial and ultimately a multiracial country. Um, I can't say this with the certitude that will allow me to point any any uh, uh, evidence that says this, but I have a sense that part of the great rush of immigration that came in the latter part of the 19th century, which brought dozens, I mean, thousands and thousands of people from all parts of the world to America to enjoy our freedoms here, part of that came, I think, from the impulse that this, the proclamation had made in the middle of the Civil War, which is that this was a country for all people. And I believe we owe Lincoln uh, a debt for having uh, done that. When you say that, I immediately thought of um, Lincoln's last speech, which ultimately got him killed. But he was talking about black men, especially those who serve, should have the right to vote. I mean, that's a far, that's a big leap from colonization. Yes, it certainly is. Um, uh, now, colonization was still part of his conversation, even after he issued the Emancipation Proclamation. Right. So it took him some time. But, I, um, you know, think of this. Uh, part of the internal debate over the Emancipation Proclamation was uh, uh, whether they should include phrases in the document which encouraged um, uh, the freed slaves not to turn on their former owners. And um, Lincoln uh, was very worried about that turning to this servile insurrection I mentioned. Chase, Salmon Chase, the Secretary of the Treasury, went on to become the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court and a very close ally of Lincoln's, and much more forthright on abolition before uh, he joined the cabinet, then Lincoln, he, even Lincoln had been. Uh, he said um, uh, it was important to enter into the document that the freed slaves are encouraged to come join the Union Army. And that one phrase was so key, so that the Union troops, as they conquered territory in the South, not only freed the slaves, but were able to recruit them over to put uniforms on and go right back out and fight the Confederacy. And those troops were key to the success of the latter years of the war. Lincoln knew that. He understood it. He understood that these were people fighting for their own freedom and that they deserved to have all the fruits of America's uh, liberties. Um, and so, yes, it was a radical notion for him to say that they deserve the vote. Uh, 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 and you see how far Lincoln had come when he gets to that. And so we referred to him as a racist a few minutes ago. Think of it in context and think of how... As he lived, Lincoln grew, and as he grew, he embraced more and more of what we now value as our deepest principles. Todd, we only we only made him racist if we looked at him in the 21st century. We yeah. we kept our 19th century hat on, and we had a little wiggle room, and so we, we, we liberated him. Yes. Todd Brewster, I can't thank you enough for the wonderful work and, and, and joining us today on The Public Morality. Th thank you, Byron. I really enjoyed speaking with you, and uh, I, I appreciate all your comments about the book. Thank you. Coming up, Winston-Salem Mayor Alan Joins discusses poverty and the city's plan to address it. Poverty is America's unspoken issue. We know it exists, but we're either unwilling or unable to address it in any meaningful way. 
during this presidential campaign season, unless you listen closely, you would be hard-pressed to hear anyone mention poverty in any significant way. The rising trajectory of poverty coincides with rising levels of homelessness and food insecurity. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, 21 percent of children in America currently live in poverty. In Winston-Salem, North Carolina, which happens to be the city we broadcast the public morality, Mayor Alan Joins is leading innovative efforts to address poverty here in the city. And Mayor Joins, welcome to the public morality. Uh, it's, it's very nice to be with you. I look forward to chatting with you today. Thank you. Let's begin uh, with reasons that you decided to tackle the issue of poverty in Winston-Salem. Well, thank you. It's it's certainly uh, a complex issue, but uh, I, I knew from uh, from the statistics that are coming out that we do have a high level of poverty here in Winston Salem. Depending on what formula you use, it's probably in the 22 percent range. And to me, it's just uh, unimaginable uh, for a city that's progressive that we believe we are a city of the arts and innovation that would have that high level, knowing that uh, you know almost a fourth of our citizens are living at or below the poverty level. So I felt like it was incumbent upon us to um, try to develop some ideas to to uh, begin addressing that. I also will say that um, we had extraordinarily good success with our 10-year plan to end chronic homelessness. Uh, we set a goal, I guess now, about uh, eight years ago, and we've reduced chronic homelessness by uh, over 60%. Um, an initiative that was led uh, sort of like we're, we're approaching the poverty, we brought together a group of uh, good-thinking individuals and then developed a strategic plan and put it out in front of uh, citizens and got it adopted by the various boards and commissions and have had good success in implementing it. Uh, so I felt like let's give that a try with with the poverty issue as well. Yes, and, and according to the statistics that I that I saw f- coming from the city, uh, the issue of poverty disproportionately uh, impacts African American and Hispanic communities. I mean, I, I yes. what forty five percent for Hispanic community and over thirty about thirty five percent for African Americans. Is that correct, sir? That that's correct. That's the numbers that I've seen, and it's uh, certainly just a, a very very difficult statistics to see and and just to understand that uh, certain. Uh, same with our populations are hit very, very hard with uh, with the poverty level. All right. If you would uh, momentarily allow me to put my cynical hat on for just okay. a moment. Just sure, a moment. absolutely. I can see how someone uh, reading about this initiative, they see the words, and they just see the words, mind you, thought force. Yeah. Um, could they reach the conclusion that this is just a cabal of pontificators with no real plan for action? What would you say to a charge like that? Well, what I would say is that uh, 50 years ago when Lyndon Johnson declared war on poverty, uh, there have been a lot of efforts that's been made towards it. I think I saw a figure over a trillion dollars in federal government spending alone trying to address poverty, and it's not worked. Uh, our poverty levels are as high as they are were back in 1964. So my thought was we got to have some different kind of thinking. You know, the old saying, if you keep doing the same thing, you're going to get the same results. So the idea is to, yeah, pull together a group of critical thinkers, but the, the two objectives we are, are we have is, is are to come up with objectives that are doable and impactful and to get it done within a, a relatively short period of time. Hopefully by late next spring, I, I want us to have a plan in place that we can begin implementing over the next two, three, four years and start having a, a real impact. Do you believe your efforts, um, can they be achieved in isolation? In other words, can Winston-Salem achieve its goals without a state or or a federal partner, in your opinion? I think it will be... There's some things we can do locally, but there are so many things that are impacted by particularly federal uh, regulations. Uh, you know, our housing uh, authority here in Winston are, are trying some, some new things with our step-up program uh, to you know, encourage people uh, in our public housing programs to get a job. But there's some disincentives, as you well know, Byron, that uh, you know, when an individual starts kind of moving up, their benefits start going down. And so it uh, becomes a disincentive. And I know uh, Larry Woods, who's director of our uh, housing Authority has actually testified for con- before Congress, uh, matter of fact, only about three weeks ago, just pointing out that there are some almost catch-22s to the way the, the regulations were set up. So uh, to answer your question, it will be much more impactful if we can get some, uh, perhaps some changes in, in regulations at the federal level. Um, but there are some things we can do here locally as well. Talk to me about how poverty, and especially at the rate that uh, the numbers you cited here in Winston, how does poverty impact a city? Yeah, that, that's a good that's a good point. You know, so many different ways. Uh, from uh, my my supposition is that there are you know indirect impacts on our crime rates. 
their impacts on the uh, achievement rates within the public school systems. You know, of young people who are going to bed hungry or, or maybe in a, in a situation where the, the parents are working at night or not, not receiving good supervision at home and really not, not seeing good role models to, to emulate as they go to school. And, and then the cost of health care. Um, uh, you know, obesity is just a growing problem in our community as well as across the U.S. And obesity uh, impacts all of us as we have to supplement the emergency rooms and, uh, and places such as that where individuals who have no other choice but to go there to try to get, get help when they are sick or injured. So just any number of, of impacts. Uh, and one of, the, one of the ways we were able to, I think, get good buy-in on our homeless initiative was that we, we talked about it in two ways. We talked about it as a moral issue. Certainly, we want to work with individuals who are homeless, but it also has an economic impact on the community. I've forgotten the exact numbers, but uh, it costs you know X thousands of dollars to uh, ha- to provide services to a homeless person, but it costs probably a third of that to get an individual into a, a housing situation. So same way with poverty. There's so many impacts on a community that cost us dollars that if we can get a person kind of moved up and, 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 and in a self-sufficient situation, it it's much more cost-effective for the entire community. Now, now politically speaking, uh, I'm sure you know this much better than I, but poverty rarely receives the traction that it deserves. Yes, and, it's, and it's almost a byproduct. For example, poverty came up in, in after the riots in Baltimore, after, after the uprising in Ferguson. You hear about poverty then, but mm-hmm. rarely is poverty being put front and center as you're doing it. Why do you think that is? Uh, that's a good question. It probably varies from locale to locale, uh, but it may be, too, it's just a, such a complex uh, problem, uh, complex issue that uh, maybe folks just kind of steer away from it, knowing that it's uh, been so many things tried that really haven't been successful. It's uh, maybe just a little bit of a apprehension in terms of taking on such a uh, thorny, uh, complex issue. But uh, I think if, if we don't, um, and then there are some types of unrest or situations in a community, it just further exacerbates the, the tension within a community. And so if we can be proactive, uh, not only with uh, our police and community uh, relations, but if we can be proactive and, and try to demonstrate that we are seeking uh, ideas and seeking plans and plan to put, put those plans in place, uh, hopefully it will help to uh, continue to, to build trust between the city and the public sector and the community. You know, as as you were just giving me that answer, I was I was thinking that I I have there's this term that I I think I've coined it, mm-hmm. um, and I call it the Bob Dylan demographic. Okay. Now, now I'm a, you may not be old enough to know, but I remember when Bob Dylan wrote a song. Um, you know, like a Rolling Stone, he says, "When you got mm-hmm. nothing, you got nothing to lose." That's right. And That's right. there's a there's a percentage of the population that all cities have that feel that way. Yes. But but but, it, but if you there's a also I'm wondering if there's a point to where if that percentage gets to a certain point it makes managing a city very very difficult. So mm-hmm. so if poverty goes unchecked with that thinking if poverty goes unchecked what could be some of the long-term concerns for the city of Winston? Uh, that's a great point. Uh, uh, certainly, as we've had to rebuild our economy here from one based on manufacturing, uh, you know, tobacco, textiles, and furniture, to one based on knowledge industries, one of our challenges, of course, is to make sure we have uh, sufficient numbers of trained and skilled individuals to fuel those new types of companies that we're bringing here, expanding here, or helping to get started here. So if, a, if an individual has lost hope and is, is really has no motivation to, to move forward, there's a great chance that they'll be perhaps be dropped out of high school, haven't got a GED, haven't gotten the training that will be will allow them to be competitive in, in getting some of these jobs. And then when we're trying to recruit uh, a company here, for instance, uh, and they look at our workforce and see uh, high levels of high school dropouts or, or, or low levels of, uh, of secondary attainment, it makes it difficult for us to attract some of the types of companies we're going after. And then um, just uh, the overall participation in our community and, and uh, helping to move us forward and to have you know knowledge of, uh, of, of what a city or county is trying to accomplish and you know, looking at bond issues that we might be needing to get done for infrastructure and, and helping them to, helping folks understand why they're needed and, and their willingness to step up and get involved in the, in the community and you know communities uh, thrive also on volunteers um, 
we uh, uh, city or county can't do everything by themselves, and so we looked at looked at uh, nonprofit organizations to help us carry through the mission of providing services sometimes. And so, and they are very dependent on volunteers and to individuals who just trying to uh, survive. You know, they aren't really uh, interested or, or really have ability to our time to, to volunteer. So lots of lots of implications, I think. Mm-hmm. Now, according to the latest census data that, that I've read, I mean, this is a really alarming figure. It's still hard for me to get my head around it, but it says that, that half the nation, I, th- I think the actual number is like 48, 47% mm-hmm. are either in poverty or close to it. Wow. Now, you've raised awareness here in Winston, but how do you go about maintaining the public's attention so that even those who may not fall into poverty per se can still see this issue as in their self-interest to care. Yeah, and that's the rub, certainly. Uh, One of our objectives uh, in in this poverty initiative is really to put a new face on poverty. I'm afraid there's there's so many misconceptions about what a person in poverty might look like. Um, we we, uh, we showed our thought force a, a little presentation uh, regarding a um, a single uh, mom who's working two jobs, has two kids, and is in poverty. And so the old rub of all they got to do is get a job is not true. It's they got to get a job and they got to have a support mechanism. And this woman was walking, I think she was walking three or four miles a day to get, get to work. She had a car, but it had broken down and she could not get enough put together to, to get the transmission fixed or whatever it was. But here's a hardworking single mom who's trying to raise two kids. And so that's really the face of poverty. I want folks to see and understand that it's not, not folks who are, uh, uh, you know, deadbeats, as we might calculate it there, but these are really hardworking folks who just uh, can't get that break to break to break through. And so, dealing with poverty is not just getting a job, but there's probably eight or nine other factors that we've got to try to address, support mechanisms that need to be in place to help these individuals. You know, I was wondering also when I was looking um, at the data that, mm-hmm. that the, you know, the city provided, couldn't one using the I'm using the uh, the federal, the, for example, the federal uh, guidelines for a family of four is 24450 to qualify as living in poverty. Mm-hmm. Now, when I read that, I, I, I wonder, isn't the problem even more entrenched than the numbers indicate? Because if, even if you raise that 5000 maybe even $10,000 for a family of four, mm-hmm. they would still have many of the challenges that you sort of articulated as to why you need to address poverty. So mm-hmm. is it not even larger than we probably even know? I think you make a, an excellent point. There's so many folks on the on the cusp, if you will, that uh, you know the old uh, religious saying, you know, there by the grace of God go I. Uh, you know, so many folks are you know a couple of paychecks away from you know following through and and, and being in a situation like that, to, and they really don't have the safety net, don't have the cushion of if some catastrophic event occurs with uh, with uh, health of one of the providers, or in the case of that lady and her car breaking down. Um, uh, you know something going wrong in their home or something like that. So yeah, I think you think you're exactly right that there are many, many more folks that are not showing up in the statistics that are that are close to the poverty level that could easily drop drop below it if something happened. Talk to me, if you will, uh, in the few minutes we have left, that about some of the structural things about Winston Salem that could make this effort successful. I think Winston, uh, one, has a, a great um, reputation of uh, philanthropy and, and supporting arts causes, of course, but also social causes. We have a number of great uh, foundations here. One of, the, one of the most notable ones is the Kate B. Reynolds uh, Poor and Needy uh, Trust, which I think has, is very interested in this and actually has made a, recently made a, a $30 million commitment over a period of five years to help you know, work with families. So we've got some potential resources there. Uh, I think we've also got um, one of our initiatives in, in terms of our overall economy is that we're really promoting an entrepreneurial culture. And I think really successful cities of the future will be those cities that embrace this entrepreneurial culture and rapid change. And so if we can kind of bring those two together with individuals to provide a way to get them stabilized and then provide a way to help them with entrepreneurial ideas or small business startups, wherever it might be, that they can begin to then develop some wealth uh, with themselves. And so, uh, and our economy is fairly stable here uh, as, as we've gotten it to moving forward. And some folks have asked me, why uh, why are you just now getting involved with this? I said, well, we had a task in front of us to stabilize our own economy because it was uh, major changes with the loss of the manufacturing jobs. So we had to get ourselves turned around before we could really start looking at uh, specific uh, issues such as this. 
So uh, w- w- would it be fair to say uh, that the city, um, like Winston, as you've described it, uh, is is in a unique position to tackle something like this, where there may be some cities, urban cities, for example, that may not even have the kind of structural uh, benefits that you've outlined. May very well be. You know, some some of our, our our city colleagues are struggling to to just keep their keep the doors open, so to speak, and keep their services provided. And we know some cities are facing bankruptcy. So we we are fortunate. Winston's in a very strong position. We good finances here. We have the highest credit rating of any any cities in the U.S. And our economy, as I mentioned earlier, is stable and, and beginning to, to grow. So I think we are we, we do have the luxury, if you will, of trying to address this thing from a fairly strong position. Well, it, it is certainly my hope that um, the end product of this is something that could be replicated because poverty continues to be something that we know exists, but we are unwilling to talk about or even, as you pointed out, even uh, putting a face on it, at least a human face. Yes, sir. Right. So I, I, I wish you must, much success uh, in, in this gargantuan effort, sir. Well, thank you. And thank you for being on the public rally today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Coming up, my closing remarks. Join us next time on The Public Morality as we discuss the social, political, and moral aspects of the water crisis in Flint, Michigan. That's next time on The Public Morality. And now for my closing remarks. There is an unhealthy arrogance of certainty permeating our political discourse that says only our side is virtuous. Only our side is pure, moral, high-minded, ethical, and principled. If we do indeed see ourselves in this light, what is the best that can be offered to those in opposition of our worldview? It is to believe the side of the political continuum that we endorse holds the key to American success. In other words, we and we alone are in sole possession of the truth. Even a campaign slogan such as Donald Trump's Make America Great Again assumes America was great at one point, there is a shared understanding of the definition of great along with the shared acceptance of the great time period of yesteryear that Trump refers. But the certainty that is currently so pervasive offers a good case study in how one views President Obama's use of executive orders. Since November 2014, the president has used executive action to achieve a carbon emissions deal with China temporary amnesty for 5 million illegal immigrants, normalized relations with Cuba, an Iran nuclear deal, a Paris climate deal, and the tightening of gun control here in America. The strict constructors are bemoaning, what about Article 1, Section 1 of the Constitution that reads, all legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States. But Article 2 justifies the president's actions, Section 1 of the Constitution grants executive power, and Section 3 of Article 2 further directs the president to take care of the laws to be faithfully executed. If we eliminate Franklin Roosevelt, given he served three full terms as president, Mr. Obama still trails Presidents Truman, Eisenhower, Johnson, Nixon, Carter, Reagan, Clinton, and George W. Bush in terms of executive orders issued. But the existing narrative by those with a different certainty suggests the president is running roughshod over the nation's governing document. Criticism of the president's actions is invariably conducted in isolation of other factors. It is to embrace a sophomoric understanding of our checks and balances system. Here's where the arrogance of certainty comes into play. If the scenario were reversed and a Democratic Congress was in the majority unwilling to work with a Republican president and that president opted for executive action, would the same criticism apply or would the roles change? If those who decry the president's current actions suddenly became silent when a commander-in-chief of their liking did similar, couldn't one conclude that the dissent is more about political cacophony and less so about constitutional concerns? The Republican-led legislative branch has not only demonstrated willingness to not work with the president, but has also placed a portion of its responsibility onto the backs of the Supreme Court. Back in June, the Supreme Court upheld a key part of the Affordable Care Act that provided insurance subsidies to all qualifying Americans. 
the 6-3 decision by the court in which it was asked to interpret the meaning of the legislation was met with charges of legislating from the bench. However, this was the responsibility of Congress and not the courts to decide. The moment judges are asked to interpret the meaning of legislation and not whether the legislation passes constitutional muster is problematic, democratically speaking. This has created an atmosphere whereby we celebrate the evidence of our certainty manifest in our preferred virtuous pursuits while eschewing the rest without appreciation for its interdependent nature. Excessive executive orders, asking the Supreme Court to function in roles that it was not designed, or Congress taking on a recalcitrant posture toward governing, though not illegal, does violate the spirit of our form of government. What is certain, however, this is not a path toward a more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments, questions, and suggestions for upcoming shows. To contact us, you can email at Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, Byron at PublicMorality.org. That's Byron at PublicMorality.org. That's our show for today. The Public Morality is produced by WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.